0: Okay, so in torts, we began talking about privileges. And what I should say a privilege is, it's a defense. So if somebody comes and he, or she sues you with a tort, it is your privilege to come up with a defense. And so we're going to talk about privileges, which are some of the defenses that you can use against a person who sues you. And we're going to talk about situations where these privileges apply and when these privileges don't apply. So the first one that we're going to be focusing on is consent. So we're going to talk about when consent applies, when you can use it as a defense, when you have the privilege of consent, you could say, or we're going to talk about when it doesn't apply. And most of these cases actually talk about when consent does not apply. So let's go into a a couple of cases. Uh, We talked about O'Brien v. Conard, and this is an instance where a person was... uh, Immigrating to the United States. Before getting to the United States, you had to be vaccinated. So this was an older case. It was about the time uh, when uh, the flu was going around like crazy. Uh, So you needed to be vaccinated before you got into the port. And if you weren't, you were going to be quarantined. And so this person... I know this sounds quite quite not in the distant past, huh? But this person was vaccinated and... Uh, they had some poor reactions to the vaccine. And and so they, and when I say poor, I should say less than poor. They had a lot of um, irritation and boils that popped up around the vaccination area. And they became quite ill. But, so they sued, saying that this was a battery, meaning you touched me and it caused harm. And the court says, well, you can't use that argument because there was consent here. And so what gave them consent? Well, we're going to use an objective standard to see if a party consented to action. So we're going to want to look at not what the uh, plaintiff in this case was thinking, but we're going to look at what their actions said. In this case, she stood in line, she waited for the vaccination, she knew that everybody on the boat was being vaccinated, Uh, She was familiar with vaccinations, and she did not object to the vaccination. And so all these actions implied that she had given uh, consent, even though she hadn't explicitly said, yes, you can uh, vaccinate my arm. So that's the first case where we have consent as being used as a defense. The takeaway is that we use an objective standard. So now we have Hackbart versus the Cincinnati Bengals. And if you know anything about football, you'll know that the Cincinnati Bengals is a football team, and Hackbart is one of the players on the Denver Broncos, or at least he was in the eighties. And the Bengals it was a team that he was playing, and there was an incident where uh, he was playing. The play had ended, and uh, the person on the Bengals had uh, pushed him or hit him aggressively after the play had ended, and. They both went off and did their own thing uh, to their respective sidelines because the ball had turned over, and nobody thought anything of it until it turns out that Hackbart had some injuries resulting from this play. So we talked about where do we draw the line between when you have consent and when you don't have consent when it comes to a dangerous activity, because he's obviously consenting to play this dangerous sport, and so when's this change when can you say no i did not consent to being hurt like that and what we're going to talk about is in these kind of circumstances is the customs of the activity meaning what do players see as unreasonable and we're going to talk about the testimony of those who could be witnesses in this kind of case so we're going to talk about and figure out what those customs are from coaches from players teammates referees all these people who have an understanding of what the sport entails and what is customary for the sport so football for example hitting after a play is unreasonable it's against the custom of the sport hockey you can just put down your gloves and go at it And that, But there is the part where you cross the line, and so it's, how do you determine when you cross the line? It's not up to the fans, it's up to those who actually has an understanding of the customs of the sport. Okay, so now we're going to get into more details with consent with Moore v. Williams. And Williams, in this case, so there was an ear doctor, and the patient had given consent to examine one ear, and... The doctor decided that there was need uh, for surgery on the one ear. So they went under, and the patient went under. The doctor looked closer and was like, there's nothing wrong with this ear. But looked at the other ear, and there was something wrong with that ear. So they went and conducted an operation. It was successful. No injuries were caused from it. But the plaintiff sued for damages anyways, uh, saying that this was a battery. And the jury agreed with them. Uh, but gave an excessive amount of damages, and so both parties appealed because the plaintiff wanted, sorry, the judge uh, ordered a new trial because the damages were excessive. So the plaintiff appealed because they wanted all the money, and the defendant appealed because they didn't want this to go to a jury. Our biggest takeaway from this is that consent should typically be explicit. You need to ask somebody if you're going to operate on them. However, there are certain circumstances where you could say that consent is implied. Uh, there's four big ones. Uh, first, a patient is unable to give consent. So if they're unconscious, uh, it's a life-threatening emergency. Uh, as such, they're intoxicated, they're incompetent and of providing consent in any way. That's one way that you could find com- Uh, implied consent. Second is if there's life-threatening conditions, if the actions are delayed, meaning the person is going to die if nothing happens. Third is if a reasonable person would consent underneath the circumstances. And fourth is that the physician had no reason to believe that consent would be refused. So in this situation, there was just too many things that said that the physician needed consent. It, wouldn't, it wasn't harmful to wake the uh, plaintiff in this case. Uh, they weren't in any life-threatening conditions. Um, but those are circumstances where you need to get consent is, if those situations are not dangerous. But you can avoid consent in those life-threatening situations. And that way doctors still have a little bit of reasonableness with, making sure that they can operate without worry of being sued all the time. Our final case is another case about a doctor. is DeMay versus Roberts. And here what happened is that the doctor was uh, visiting an inpatient who was in childbirth, and he brought an assistant with him, you know, but the assistant wasn't a physician. The doctor was overworked and was tired, it was stormy, so he brought this person with him to... Um. to cover on the rainy day, you should say, to carry his stuff. And the husband opened the door, and the doctor said, this person's here to carry my stuff, and he let him in. Uh, and the doctor went in to the uh, wife, and uh, the assistant, quote-unquote assistant, and the doctor uh, worked together to... Help the uh, birth go well. They did everything proper except they did not tell the people that the assistant was not a physician. When they found out, the plaintiffs in the situation were not impressed. They're quite ashamed because it was a very private situation where they would not have consented had they known that this person was not a physician and where their consent had become implied because of fraudulent information because they did not know, and their information was incorrect. So what needs to happen here is that our big takeaway is that fraudulent consent, or consent obtained through fraud, is not considered consent. Uh, Consent can be obtained fraudulently if a person is not well-informed. So well-informed is a way to take away that fear of not consent. Uh, but it is up to the defendant to actually make sure that they disclose all that information. There is a situation where fraudulent consent does not negate consent in that case, and that's if the uh, consent is about collateral circumstances instead of being essential in character. If it's essential in character, then um, then there's no consent there. Uh, let's just go over a quick example just to prove this point. So first, if a fraudulent If they're fraudulent, so say a person is being invited to go to a dunking booth and to raise money. And the person agrees, believing that the money is going to go to one thing. And then it turns out the money is going to another thing. So they can't sue. Um, Well, the consent argument can be used even though it's fraudulent because it's about a collateral thing. Now, had the person been told that they were going to be dunked in water and then they ended up falling into a pit of snakes, well, that's not consent. That's not what they agreed to as far as the essential element goes. So, the content there matters, and that's the privilege of consent.